0: Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckel. I'm James Ward. Okay. Well, welcome everyone. Today we have with us Runar, who is one of the founders of the Unison Programming Language and also wrote the Red Book, the Scholar Red
1: Book. <laughs> which, I, which I did read this summer, and it took me a long time. And um, there were ex- examples that I just had to stare at for a long time. I feel like, and I got all the way to the end, but I feel like I got about 30%, which, which was helpful. You know, it did, moved me forward. Did you have I to like not...
0: hold the book to your like face? So it would absorb the code would just like absorb into you.
1: There was a lot of just staring <laughs> there. There was, you guys did some clever, you had some clever code in there.
2: Oh, so, well, I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: well welcome runar it's good to yes. have you on
2: thank you it's good to be on here
0: so we have talked a number of times in the podcast about unison and we both just have a little bit of experience with it we've done uh some hackathons at some of the CrestaBute butte conferences with unison i don't think you participated i in did the not participate in this no but, um that was that was the main time when i got my hands into unison and mm-hmm. um But I'd love to hear, what is Unison? We, you know, we've mentioned it a lot of times, but what is it and why does it exist?
1: Does it exist? Does it
0: exist?
2: (laughs) Good question. Well, so Unison is a a programming language. It is a a general purpose, purely functional language. Uh, It's uh, strictly evaluated, you know, kind of like Scala. It looks syntactically very similar to Haskell. And... uh, the key feature of it is that it's uh, content addressed, so that means that you know when you create a definition like a function or a type, uh, the name of it actually is uh, is canonical and uh, based on the definition itself so it's a, it's a hash of the definition. <laughs> So And, and the gets...
0: definition is not the code, necessarily. It's more like the AST of the definition or something?
2: Right. So code in unison is not text. It's stored as a tree. Uh, and the text is simply a user interface onto the tree. And then we store the tree in a binary format in a database.
0: So if you like change the name of something, that's not necessarily changing the, the hash of the function. Like something within the function.
2: Like right. So the hash over, the value or... Right. The hash of a function never changes. So it's based on the implementation after all the names have been removed. And so if you change the name of anything, then uh that just adds metadata to the database saying like, hey, this tree now has this name. And but so the actual like,
0: functionality hasn't changed in any way, so it's still the same function.
2: Right. So it's a trivial operation to rename something. And like
0: Oh, refactoring I was working on, a, that's,
2: that'd be yeah, nice. I, was, I was working on a doc, uh, yesterday. I was just working on documentation in unison, which is written in unison. So there's a documentation sort of special syntax. So it's just that unison data structure. And I was like using the name is referencing something. And you know, I reference it by name because like that's in my, my code base and my database. And then, uh, you know, I realized that later I might Have to change the name of this thing and i was like oh that's totally fine all my docs will be updated uh, automatically so So, there's
0: this automatic like reaction like oh i can't rename that because it's going to cause all this pain and then you're like oh no i'm in unison and that's easy
1: so you're basically separating them the information about the code from the meaning of the code in other words, the AST is the is what the code means, and the metadata is the extra. What the impro- human needs. <laughs> what the, yeah, basically human description
2: of, of what it needs. Yeah, there's there's a number of uh, there's a number of things that, that sort of fall out of this the fact that like uh, every unit definition has like this canonical address in the global address space. Uh, And
0: global, you mean global, global,
1: you mean the whole world.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a a given unison definition will always have that hash, no matter who writes it. Uh, And then, you know, when you share code, you know, you, you share the the hash uh, as well as, you know, the implementation and that implementation will have the same hash at every, at every place. So if uh, i
0: write a function that takes two integers and adds them together and returns it anyone else who writes that function that same function will have the same hash and so we're sharing the same hash like it's it doesn't matter who writes it it's it, right. in the global space it's the same yeah. thing
2: i mean you you might use like different local variable names and you might give it a different name or something but unison will see it as the exact same Saying uh, like for, for instance, if the
0: functionality is the same.
2: If the functionality is exactly the same, like if the implementation is exactly the same, for example, many people might write like the option data type or like the maybe type. And they might call it different things, and the constructors might be in different order or something. But Unison will see it as not just like compatible types with different names; it'll see it as the exact same type, and you know they'll the type checker will actually unify uh, those things.
1: Whoa. Um, so what problems are you trying to solve with this new approach? I mean, you you wrote this book in, in uh, Scala, and I'm guessing that at some point you said Scala isn't enough. We need to do some, we need to, it's not solving all the problems we need to solve. So what new problems are you t- wanting to solve with this?
2: Well, yeah, that the Unison language is supposed to solve, uh, well, it's kind of just like a new approach to the the whole developer experience of writing software. Uh, So we've been sort of stuck with this sort of textual representation where, you know, we're mutating bags of of text files. Uh, We've been kind of stuck with that, you know, since Since the 60s or something. (laughs) Yeah or, you know, even before, but like that, that paradigm, you know, you, you end up running into, into walls uh, with that. And I I think that those, those walls, we started sort of taking them for granted. Uh, But like the, like the program text of, uh, you know, of the, the, like the source code is really only just like one aspect of, of like writing software. There's all this other stuff, which is like version control and collaboration. And like version control doesn't really currently understand anything about the code. It just, (laughs) you know, it just understands that you have a bunch of text files. It doesn't Mm -hmm. know what the contents mean. Uh, It drives me
0: crazy when I, when you like, all you do is run a formatter. you've changed nothing about the code. And all of a sudden you have like all these changes in your code. It's like, So you don't want to run the formatter because... Yeah, it's like, I don't want to commit. that just has these changes that didn't actually really change anything. Exactly. And that's one of the magic tricks that you can do with Unison is that when you open code in your IDE, it takes that representation and turns it into the visual form for you. But you can apply whatever formatting you want to that, and it's not actually changing the underlying
2: code. So if I wanted to
0: use
1: tabs instead of spaces... It right? doesn't care.
2: Actually, Unison will just forget whether you use tabs or spaces. Right,
1: because that's not part of the AST.
2: Right, so the, the actual source code uh, that you write, it gets thrown away. Mm-hmm. And so it d- doesn't actually get saved into the, the database. So uh, it
1: when you reopen whatever representation, it recreates the right. code from the AST And then how does it apply, how does it know how the metadata should appear? Because presumably like comments and things, that's not part of the AST?
2: Uh, Well, yeah, it actually, so comments, there's a number of ways that you can do comments in in unison. Like you can do comments that are just sort of for you where they get ignored when the code is is parsed. Uh, And there are also this sort of inline comments, which you can just use strings for. And so they become part of the AST, but they don't actually execute when you uh when you run. Hmm. Uh so yeah, they, they actually do become part of the AST.
1: Okay. But the the inline comments, those are stored in the metadata? Uh
2: at the moment, no. I mean comments are not part of that metadata format, but things like names become part of the metadata and like authorship and licenses. Mm-hmm and other things like that get stored as metadata on the, um, on that syntax tree.
1: So when I reopen this code, it, the AST produces something that I see, and then the metadata you is somehow... Render it
2: as source code for you. Yes. And what you'll I... see is you'll, it'll use all of the local variable names that you used, and mm-hmm. it'll use the name that you originally wrote the function in. And it's uh, pulling I
1: mean, that from the metadata as well. Right. So somehow it combines the AST and the metadata to give me the representation. And with a code formatter that could be... Right. Could be anything. Could could be be, anything. Right.
2: Yeah. So currently there's only one surface syntax for Unison, which looks a lot like Haskell. But theoretically, you know, we could have multiple surface syntax renderers. So, you know... You could be looking at code and writing code that looks like Python or Lisp. And then I can be writing code that looks like Haskell or Scala, but we're both writing unison code. Huh.
1: Oh, so I could actually, if I'm like super comfortable with Python, I could actually write my code in sort of a Pythonic way.
2: Right. Huh. That's that's yeah. a lot. And then when I look at it, I'll see something that looks more like Haskell. Has- okay. So that's kind of uh, kind of cool. Yeah.
0: So, so you you said at some point we need to rethink some of the very foundational pieces of programming languages, and and uh, you and Paul were the main creators. Is that right, Paul Chisano? Well,
2: Paul Chisano is the, is the instigator of this whole okay uh, idea, but yeah. Uh, so Paul and uh, and myself and Arya Irani. We uh, started a company around this called Unison Computing.
0: So you, so one of the foundations that you that this addresses is something that we run into a lot in the non-Unison world, which is upgrading libraries, and it's just is such a huge pain. Where now the Java Java has the module system to deal with. You know how you can kind of sandbox and namespace things and I don't know you know more about the module system than I do Uh,
1: not really sure that was even the problem it was trying to solve (laughs) I think it was really more 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 their internal issue because you don't you don't have to use modules and I'm not even sure how much benefit you get unless your project is a big library but this
0: was like bolted on way after the fact and and i think when you see it bolted on you're like i don't know this idea of of modules or whatever the need is underneath that really needs to be something that's thought about at the beginning
1: and in terms of version control which they didn't in java they just said oh we're not doing that that's Gradle we'll take care of that yeah. so but i think i think it does need to be you know because we see these issues in python and and well and then of course in older languages too so. yeah
0: yeah so th- so with like unison and this ast for- um approach doesn't it make this the the compatibility issues across libraries or whatever you call them in unison doesn't it kind of change the paradigm around that too
2: yeah i mean it makes it completely different you you still do have like version management issues and, and you still have uh, uh, sort of inherent problems with that. But you don't have this issue, for instance, where like you have uh, a dependency conflict, uh, for instance, in Scala, where you might have library A and library B that all de- that both depend on library C and they depend on different versions of library C. And now right. you can't build your project because like, you know those two things can't exist uh, at the same time the same,
1: right because you won't you can only have one version of library c
2: right but right. in in unison, you can actually have all the versions you can have all the versions simultaneously in your code base, and it's perfectly fine because the you know if they really are different, then data types will have different hashes, functions will have different hashes, and then you can mediate between different versions of things with ordinary functions. Um, if you try to pass off one version of a data type as another, like you try to pass it to a function that accepts like a, a later version of that same data type, you'll just get a regular type error in unison. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and so, so another it- uh, another um, consequence of this code base, uh, Thing and everything being content addressed is that we, we don't actually have builds. There's no compilation step. Everything is, everything is uh, you know, stored in this AST and it's sort of compiled just in time uh, to like a bytecode format. But it's, uh, you know, th- th- there's never a time where you take like, okay, take my entire code base and now like compile it or like do this build against all of my dependencies. Uh, you know, the, the code base at any given time is is built and, and works. And so you make these sort of incremental changes to things.
0: So as soon as you type some code, the compiler or whatever turns it into the AST and stores that AST, but then uh, you don't... None of the other code has changed, so there's no reason to compile it. Well, and if you share that with somebody, you're sharing them with them the AST, mm-hmm. essentially the what you know I think of it as like a class file, essentially. But they don't need to then recreate that class file because they already have the
1: AST form of it. Mm-hmm. Is that right? All accurate? Exactly. Uh, you said it was going into some kind of bytecode format. Is this um, w- what does Unison run on?
2: Uh I mean Unison runs on the Unison runtime okay. which is just uh it's our just our implementation. Mm-hmm. Uh it's a virtual machine that just runs Unison. It takes the Unison AST, it compiles it to a, an intermediate form which is kind of like a bytecode. And then it <clears throat> runs it on a bytecode interpreter similar to the Java virtual machine.
1: Okay. And and this uh, what what platforms is it available on now?
2: Uh <clears throat> at the moment, I mean it runs on Unixes, so it runs on Mac and Linux and and things like that. Uh we've been trying to impl- implement Windows support, but there's been some difficulty in like actually getting it built. Huh. uh it's like it's written in Haskell and and there's been some we've had some issues with compiling Haskell on Windows. Interesting.
0: I was gonna ask you if Unison was like self hosted yet. If the No, if you-
2: no. <clears throat> it's uh in unison <laughs> both the compiler uh, uh, or type checker and the um uh, uh like the the tool as well as the runtime are, are written in uh haskell mm-hmm. and we actually piggyback on the haskell runtime uh yeah, interesting for for running our our bytecode interpreter huh. hmm.
1: do you see at some point uh, self hosting it
2: uh, sure yeah yeah, there's there's no reason we couldn't do uh, that
0: probably a lot that's of, a lot of work to It's a lot of work, and it's kind of
2: on the back burner for now sure yeah yeah you' are just but before you it. before we get to like self hosted you know where like unison is written in unison, uh we can get a lot of benefit from uh, giving people an API where they can talk to their code base through unison, huh, so you know you could interrogate your your code database uh, from your Unison programs, and we can get there a lot faster than we can get to like actually writing Unison, like hmm. writing the tool in Unison. Sure.
0: Yeah. So one of the other magic tricks that you can do with with this setup is, that I've heard you talk about is the ability where, because you're pure functional, and you have the hash of a function globally if a function is called with a given parameter, you globally only really ever need to do that once. Like once you compute the output, once someone has computed the output, then you never need to recompute that. Is, it, is that accurate from what yeah, I think of? That's, yeah,
2: that's right. So once a given hash has been called with, with, uh, with some, some arguments, it never actually needs to be called again with those arguments technically. And we take advantage of that with testing. So if you write a test in unison, you add it to your code base, it runs the test, and then it stores the result. Uh, and then, you know, you don't have to, like, rerun your tests like as, a, as part of a build. So
1: it's basically built-in memoization.
2: Yeah, but it's more it's it's also for collaboration so like if i write a library and i write my tests and then i publish my library i also publish all of my test results so that you can see that the library works without having to actually run the tests
0: oh. and so much computing power is wasted because some developer pulls down a code base and runs the tests or some ci system runs the tests and it just is every person and every CI system is constantly redoing the same work. And in oh, unison, yeah. you you ideally, no one, there's never any duplication of work of recomputing a, a given function. Oh, only if
1: you change the code that's being tested. Or the
0: inputs change in some way. Right, yeah. right, right.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, It'd be ideally. It's interesting to cal- calculate like how much computing power is just wasted on doing the same computations over and over yeah like running
2: builds you know like there's so much computing power being wasted on running builds where you're Mm -hmm. just like oh i changed some comment somewhere or something and now continuous integration needs to be needs to run the whole build over again
0: yeah it just waste time too because there's the time to get to verify that a change is good and and run it through your whole ci process before you can deploy it for a lot of systems this takes like monumental amounts of time like like hours potentially days well in some plus cases. there's
1: the psychological you know your once your <clears throat> brain has to wait for more than a couple of seconds it starts wandering off <laughs> and that instant feedback that you can get from a very fast system. You're you're too young to remember this, but back in the early days when we had CPM machines, um, this was the first thing that Anders Heilsberg did, is he created Turbo Pascal. And
0: Renard is an old Pascal developer,
2: I remember from Turbo Pascal, is my native language basically.
1: Is it really? Okay, because on a CPM machine, like we had to, you know, go through all these compile steps. And when you had this environment where it was just like you do something and it was instant, it was like revolutionary, it was so huge. And you're basically recreating. That experience in some ways that that uh, recreating it globally, You're recreating it globally, right? Yeah, how does that work?
2: And, and also more than that, uh, <sighs> we want to take advantage of this uh, when it comes to distributed computing, and that's really where we think Unison is going to to uh, come into its own. It's where you know you can have uh, multiple computers running Unison, you know, on a on a network. Uh, and then you can, you can, you know, have them all running different parts of your units and program. So you can write a distributed program in such a way that you can ask one node, Hey, execute this hash. Uh, and that other node will either say, I mean, this is sort of simplified, but the other node will either say, yes. Okay. I know what this hash is hash is. I'm going to go run it or tell me what the implementation of the hash is and then I'll run it. Uh, and so you, then you can write distributed programs in much the same way as you would write non-distributed programs. Um, and so then it's, the sort of transfer of control between nodes is really just like, oh, take this closure and run it over here.
0: Yeah, and and you can let the distributed runtime make the decisions around when and where things should be run uh, whether they should be done done locally on the on the same node that needs it, or or distributed out to another node, it seems well, like that's that would that's have...
2: actually the thing that we we don't actually want to have our distributed runtime. Uh, the thing that we want to have is just like the local runtime, but it's going to be a completely a library concern where to run things. Yeah. So then that's completely within the programmer control. So you'll have this abstract notion of a location. And then you can say, like, at this location, run this closure.
0: Yeah.
1: So it seems like that would also affect just local concurrency, parallelism kinds of things. If you could say, well, run this on this core or that core.
2: Uh, I mean, yeah, I don't see why not. You could definitely have an implementation of that library that would, uh, you know, distribute your. I mean, that's certainly certainly uh, a valid implementation of it. Where, you, know, you have something that just runs everything locally on different cores, and you might even have different locations where you can control very tightly where things get run on your own computer.
1: Right. It could either be local or distributed, and maybe that would be transparent or have a certain level of transparency to the... Like level program.
0: one distributed is on a different CPU. Level two is on a different process level three Mm -hmm. is on a different network node or something Mm
2: -hmm. well in practice you usually want to run computations close to the data where that that it's computing on Uh, and so you know normally you'll have something like uh you know you'll be running an aws and you'll have something in an s3 bucket that you know is in a particular place and so then You know, you'll run close to to that data. Yeah, so you will have some location that you know is close to that data, like in the same region of the of the cloud. And then you say, you know, execute this there. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: But maybe if there was some characteristic like, oh, well, this requires a database, and that's on another machine, then it would say, oh, okay, then we'll run it over there. Yeah, I
0: think the meta topic is that. Data is hard to distribute. Compute is easy, so mm. let's make it easy to <laughs> move the compute to
2: the data. Right. Because mm. the traditional kind of Spark so, well, Spark. So the traditional Spark setup is like, okay, you know, you set up this sort of Spark cluster, right? Uh, and then you uh, you have to sort of like distribute your program to all of the places where where it's going to run. Yeah. Uh, and that has, that has to be done beforehand. Like there, has to be like a deployment and then you go and like execute your, your jobs on the spark cluster, but, uh, with Unison, you should be able to do this very pro- pro- programmatically. So, you know, you run your Unison cluster, uh, once and for all, or, you know, you, you, uh you know, purchase access to a, a Unison cloud that someone else has set up, uh, <laughs> And then, just as a library call, you say, "I want to execute this code that I have here on a particular region of that cloud." Yeah. Uh, and so you never have to like build your code and deploy it to this unison. You know, to to the nodes. Yeah. You just and then deal know with the versioning, right?
0: Running. Like, because then this whenever there's that whole concept of building and deploying, then you have to think about versioning and how you version schemas and how you deal with different versions running in different places and the interoperability between those and all those problems just magically go away.
2: (laughs) Well, they don't magically go away, but you know,
0: I guess when you have external schemas that you still have to deal with, with but at least in in the unison
1: application tier, you don't have to deal with them there. So what do you, I mean, You don't necessarily have to have this happen, but often something that moves a language into the mainstream is the so-called killer app kind of thing. Do you have any thoughts as to what that might be? Like somebody comes across this and they go, wow, I am 10 times more productive or less costly or whatever because by switching to this. And so absolutely, we're going to do it.
2: Yes. I think that distributed computing and cloud computing is going to be that killer app. Okay. Uh, because
0: microservices are really freaking hard.
2: Microservices are really hard. Uh, like, you know, spark clusters are are hard. Like you can, you can have a job being a spark cluster administrator, right? I mean that can be like a person's full-time job and that person gets paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Um, and and more than that just like maintaining the sort of the ops you know ma- main, maintaining like a cluster that you're going to run um like even if you're not doing like spark like to so say you're doing microservices and then just like doing ops on on a system that has like you know thousands of services or something uh that's really complicated and it's a highly specialized skill that commands really big salaries um uh, and so it's like what well, what we want to do is uh simplify that by but the thing the only thing that you're actually going to be running is unison and then you just uh have the the sort of ops uh part of things kind of under programmer control right where yeah. you uh you say where you want to run things so, I guess is to kind of like contrast with like the way that you would traditionally deploy. Uh, in in Unison, you kind of like you deploy just in time. Uh, so like you, instead of like de- de- describing your deployment out of band by some other tech, like a bunch of YAML files and, uh, you know.
0: Yeah, it's like a, As, we've we've separated these concerns of like the deployment descriptor, the instructions essentially for how to do the deployment, and the actual compiled code or whatever.
2: Yeah, and like none of that stuff is like written in a programming language, and it's it's often super brittle and it's difficult to maintain. Yes, uh, and it has, it has to be versioned and all kinds of stuff. Uh, whereas in Unison, you just deploy the program by running it. Uh, sounds like and, magic. And the deployment yeah. is like written in unison. And there's no build. There's like no de- build deploy cycle. And that's like managed mm-hmm. by even more tech like you know the CI and Travis and and whatever. Yeah. And so we just wanna get We've rid built of, up all these uh, layers
0: to work around the way that we have essentially constructed for how for what it means to be a program and how to run it.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's like we've built up this whole this whole tower of technologies uh, for like just how to like run a program on a on a bunch of computers and I think it's mostly because in traditional programming languages a program just describes the single OS process and then any communication uh, among processes has to be done over some kind of protocol or described out of band you know by by some technology that isn't like built into the language or isn't library code, you know? Yeah.
1: It always seems to end up being a scaling issue. You know, it's like we start out, we go, oh, I can write a C program, I can compile it, I can give it to the customer, they can run it, cool. And then we start adding more and more requirements. And then it's like, oh, no, this is starting to fall down. So I need more tools. We need to add more tools. And pretty soon we, we end up with a whole bunch of messy things. And we're wasting a huge amount of time.
2: You yeah, know? you run up against this really quickly. Like, uh, you know, let's say you're a data scientist or something. And, like, you, you know, make some kind of model. And you're, you're running it on your machine. And you're like, oh, this is great. But now I want to take this and like, you know, I want to run some tests on it. And so, you know, I need a cluster with like 5,000 machines in it or something. Okay, well, now this is like a problem that I need to go and take to IT or something. And I need to get, uh, you know, like resources to uh, to do this. Uh, I need to talk to the the people who manage the ops for my organization. And I like need to get permission and I need to... You know that it's like a completely and different they need to
0: build the infrastructure and give you all these uh different policy driven ways to allow you to do what you need to do but make sure you can't do things you can't you're not supposed to do and yeah, right
2: and it's like oh you know does this need to be monitored is it like mission critical yeah then you, you have the whole to,
0: like, ops sre like side of things and
2: all kinds of stuff yeah but uh with with unison what's really striking is that you can take a program that looks yeah i mean that runs on your local local machine and just tweak it a little bit and then it becomes a program that can run on any number of machines yeah and so as long as you have access to a unison cluster uh or uh we're going to end up uh building this ourselves we're going to have uh this thing we're calling the Unison cloud. And so you'll just have an API key and uh, a library, a Unison cloud library, and you'll just make a library call to uh, execute your Unison code on our cloud. Nice.
0: And it's just a matter of executing the code. It's not a CI/CD process that you have to define and maintain and all that. Just, you just call this library. And- yeah, you just like Amazon.
2: tell it where where's your S3 bucket, and like, you know, yeah. tell tell yeah. me where this thing is, and I'll execute your code.
1: So you said you're creating your own cluster. Is that your physic? Are you talking about building physical machines? Or are you talking about a cluster in the, I don't know, Amazon cloud?
2: Yeah, I mean, right now we're looking at uh, building things in, like already, uh, you know, we're hosting them in in other people's clouds like uh mm-hmm. you know Amazon and Google and uh DigitalOcean and Azure and those places. Okay. Yeah. But uh I think the main thing is that it, it really shouldn't matter like where we're running. Right. So I guess in a way we want to be like cloud agnostic, agnostic or something.
1: Yeah. Oh sure.
2: Yeah. Putting that in scare quotes.
1: Mm-hmm so I want to talk about effects. Okay. You ready to go into effects? I sure. think so. Yes. Oh, well, actually, do you have any current, I don't know, what? I mean, I'm I'm trying to get a sense of where you are in this whole process. Like, do you have any trial customers that you're you're building systems for using Unison or like or are you not there yet or what like if people are curious no, we're we're not it.
2: there yet. I, okay. The Unison language is is in alpha. I mean, it's an alpha quality software at the moment. Um, there are a lot of bugs, a lot of stuff that isn't implemented or or is sort of like preliminary. Um, but you know, it's you can already like write Unison code, and you can write libraries in Unison and share them around. And we have a a growing and and friendly community of people writing Unison code. And uh, what
0: was the, but... there was there was something that you or Paul added just in the last couple of weeks that, that I think I remembered seeing the tweets. It was like, you're really surprised by how easy Unison made adding this new feature or building this new thing on top of it. I don't know if it was like a documentation tool or what. Do remember, does that ring a bell for what?
2: Yeah, one of the things is that Documentation in unison so unison docs are written in unison, and uh, I don't remember what specific thing you're talking about. I don't remember the the specifics, but I
0: remember there was just you were like, Oh, like this was you you or Paul were like, Oh, this was surprisingly easier than I thought it would be to add this new feature, and it was, yeah. I'll have to look up with that one. I
2: think it may, may have been converting between versions of documentation formats. So okay. like we, we upgraded the, the documentation, you know, it goes through, through revisions. Yeah. And then for converting from one version to another, is just a simple function in unison. Right. And so then you can actually just compute the, the new format from the nice. old So That's cool. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, so let's talk about, okay, so I guess to recap that one, people can get Unison. Uh, I've downloaded it and and it comes with its own like IDE experience, right? Was there an IDE or was it just I mean, we, have this,
2: we have this thing called uh, Unison Codebase Manager. So it's a command line tool That's right, yeah. that allows you to interact with your code base. And then you just use your favorite text editor to write your actual code. Yeah. Uh, And it it works in such a way that like you are, you work in just basically one buffer in your code editor, in your editor. And then when you save your buffer, the tool automatically detects that and like tries to make sense of your code. And and it's it's a very interactive experience.
1: What editor do you use or which one would you recommend people to start with?
2: I mean, I use VI. Well, okay. A bunch of us us are using Emacs. Others are using VS Code.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So it works with VS Code, not IntelliJ.
2: You can use IntelliJ. That's totally fine. Okay. All
1: right. No, I'm just wondering if there's any sort of interactivity that one might get from a particular. The interactivity
2: comes from the command line tool, Uh, and then there's also a, a graphical interface just for sort of browsing the code. So okay. you can uh, you can have the tool open up a browser. So it serves an HTTP server um, where you can browse through your code base mm-hmm. and, you know, beautiful JavaScript yeah. and HTML. <laughs>
0: nice. <laughs> okay. So effects. So we, we've been writing this book on effect oriented programming using Scala and Zio and um, our I'm pretty enamored with the idea of effects. I think you've probably been in that world long before before I've entered into it a few years ago with Zio. Um, but it seems like there's kind of a big shift happening around effects and Zio being the like monadic Scala way to do it. But Unison is, is taking a different approach, I think, which is algebraic effects. Am I getting that right?
2: yeah so we're using this uh technique called algebraic effects we're uh, we're calling them abilities so it's based on uh a language called frank from a paper huh. called dooby dooby doo and <laughs> nice. it's uh which is a pun it, it, it's a great paper you should read it it's very short okay but it's um yeah so uh, the that paper calls them abilities and we're calling them that too okay and So it's it's a lot like free monads, you know, if you're familiar Uh with that from Scala. So it works uh, very similarly. Okay. Uh, But the the user interface to it is uh, that it looks like imperative code, Uh, and there's no difference really between calling effectful code and calling non-effectful code syntactically. Huh. How is that possible? how's that possible yeah well we just uh we just make the type checker smart enough to uh, so the type checker
0: knows that something is an ability and then can do special things with it
2: yeah so certain functions will require certain abilities so for instance like a print line function it takes a string and uh, you know it returns unit but it requires the ability to print onto the console uh, and so something will have to provide that ability. So there are ability handlers where you can provide, uh, abilities, but you know, for things like print line and for things like IO, uh, that ability is actually provided by the, by the runtime. So like where, where you, there's an entry point into your, into your program, you know, you can, if you have a like a main and you run your main using the runtime. It gets provided the I/O uh, ability, the
0: default environment, yeah.
2: But like, you won't be able to call print line from a function that doesn't have the ability to do I/O. So from like a, a pure function. Yeah. Uh,
0: okay. If right. so, you could define a function that would require that ability, and then you could call print line. But but it, like that, the abilities propagate through
2: all the call. Right. so they they have to be provided somewhere in an outer scope. And then once they're provided, everything that's called inside of it has, has the, uh, the capability of using that ability. And then, huh. you know, certain functions will require certain abilities um, and they can use them as long as they're provided. Huh. Sounds kind of
1: similar to what the way Z O works. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, in the environment. in that signature, you've got it kind of anyway, yeah. it seems kind of similar.
2: I mean, it's pretty yeah, similar I think- to like monadic code where you know a function will have you know it'd be a function from a to b and it will require oh it, it will have some effect m like some monadic effect m so it's a, a function from a to m of b right yeah and so then something in, in order to like get at that a or in order to to sort of like eliminate that m something will have to like tell you what what is the implementation of m how do you actually run one of those m's yeah um uh, you know for example with like uh i don't know like a state monad or something you'll have to give it the initial state uh, calling something like run state or something mm. to um to get your you know your state machine to execute yeah but in unison that's uh that's like not so it's still part of the type signature, like the the effects, are part of the type signature. So like if you had something like a state ability, like the ability to get and set some state global or like global to you state, uh, yeah. you will be uh, using something like an ability called store. And so then you say, oh, I want to store this thing in my state. And then now your function requires the the store ability. and that's th- then now your function will be not from A to B, but from A to B with this little squiggly effect uh, thing on it. It's a different kind of arrow.
0: And and you yeah, so you're in unison. You have syntax essentially that that talks about the abilities or expresses the abilities that something needs, and in it's the types. not it's in the, and is it in like generic parameters on the types or is it, or is it something specific to effects?
2: Uh, I mean, yeah, the effects can be generic. So you can say, you know, give, I want to take a function that, that takes any effect, you know, X, and then yeah. I will, you know, use that same effect. Uh, like for instance, map, uh, the map function on lists, you know, it takes, uh, Takes a function from a to b that may have any effect e, and right. it turns a list of a's into a list of b's having that same effect e because it'll call that effectful function for every element in the list. Right. So it'll have that same effect. So it can be huh. generic. Yeah. Uh, but importantly, the the surface that the program syntax it is no different between effectful code and the and the regular code. Yeah. So like and math it's the and traverse of so the same function.
0: That's cool. Yeah, cuz that I've I've heard the the problem um related to this described as like colored functions where uh in I think that the original blog post that talked about this was talking about in JavaScript which is similar in Kotlin with coroutines, you have to put some additional information on a function like a suspend fun in kotlin or mm. um i remember what it is in javascript or whatever but that creates two different worlds of functions those that are
1: mm-hmm. those async. that are
0: async and those that are not
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that makes it so you can't have a single map function uh, functor or whatever that knows how to deal with both suspend functions and non-suspend functions hmm uh so it it creates these i don't know why they called it colored but these colored functions that are not interoperable or composable and And that is just about the ability of asynchronousity, mm-hmm. but imagine that you have other abilities too and so I guess one of the amazing things about unison is that it says hey we we know it doesn't matter what abilities a function needs we can deal with that and the runtime knows how to handle that is that all (laughs) accurate
2: yeah and as a consequence of this you don't also don't have to deal with composing monads like if you have different abilities you don't have to worry about how they compose they always compose in a canonical way we just like add them to the effect list um and so the the issue of like monad transformers and things like that it it doesn't come up in this world yeah
1: that brings up a well a question comes up for me about because you're talking about lists and <clears throat> data structures in general like a lot of times they're different implementations for data structures and you have to know how you're going to use it in order to choose like oh am i might do i have a linked data structure do i have some kind of Singly, doubly, random access—you know—and it's like, oh, I, I better know that. So that, you, how do you deal with that in unison? Are you able to unify it into? No, just use a list, and we'll we'll worry about the details. Is it?
2: Uh, no, you still have those those issues of having to choose a representation that matches mm-hmm. your users users patterns like for data. Mm-hmm. Uh. But it actually gave me a good idea, which is that, uh, y- you know, you can do a lot of things abstractly with things like abilities. Uh, and so you can do things like simulate stuff, you know, like, oh, let's say you have this. Um, I don't know, like, let's say you have this async ability or or like a remote ability. And you call a bunch of these functions and they all do remote stuff. Uh and then let's say you want to like, uh, run that using like the most efficient representation possible. Then you could, in theory at least, you could run your, your remote program sort of locally uh, and then just try to see what it does. Like for instance, does it actually make any calls across a network boundary? Hmm. And if it doesn't, then you can implement it using just like a local uh you know just 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 using the local virtual machine yeah and you might be able to like store that as metadata on the hash saying like okay well given this function or given this hash like what what is actually the most efficient implementation of the ability that it uses uh, and then you can swap them in and out based on like which hash you're hmm. which hashes you're calling So all kinds of stuff like that becomes possible because uh, you know, everything is indexed by hash. Everything is kind of like repeatable. Mm
0: -hmm. It seems like we, like we, as a programming industry, keep inching very slowly towards making it so the developer doesn't have to think about resource constraints, whether those are CPUs or memory or whatever. And unison i think takes us a leap forward in in that idea of all right as a developer you shouldn't have to think about the most efficient way to do this kind of thing or where you should run this thing or if you're going to overflow the memory or whatever it seems like there are now some new tools that we have to make make that like resource not having to be resource aware in our programming languages so
1: yeah. And if you could, I mean, do what you're talking about, it seems like there could be some device that would automatically try different representations for, you know, because you, you're, we're bad at guessing when it comes to performance. And so if the, if the machine says, oh, I'll try this kind of list or this kind of list or this kind of list, oh, well, it turns out the one you wouldn't guess would be the most efficient actually is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and often in
0: production, yep. our the amount of data that we're dealing with is very different from what well, we deal with assume. in our local are our assumptions, our assumptions are. are.
1: Yep.
2: Yeah, I mean, th- I think that that's the kind of thing that that uh, content-addressed code like unlocks. You yeah. can do all kinds of like analyses, and you can you can basically like uh, build up a knowledge base of things that you know about a hash and mm. that could afford you some optimizations. Mm. So that's a cool idea, I think.
0: And even have some like AI start
2: to learn what, <laughs> oh my like, gosh. Oh, what is that? <laughs> yeah. That, that sounds awesome. <laughs> mm.
1: yeah, um, we're
2: Really only scratching the surface of like what, what we can do and like how the, how much the developer experience changes once you are no longer just like dealing with these big buckets of text files that you're like repeatedly building.
0: Yeah. right. Yeah. It's like you haven't discovered all the doors that have been unlocked yet.
2: No, definitely not. We're still discovering stuff.
1: But I also, um, I mean, there's something in the back of my mind that keeps going back to that. You said something early on where you said, Oh, you could actually program in a representation that's more familiar to you, you know, in a language that's more familiar to you. And I keep, and I think, wow, that could make a transition really easy.
2: Yeah, that's, we wouldn't be the first people to do that. I mean, like, uh, you know, Microsoft has done that with their, with their, um, what's it called? Dot net, where, you know, you could program in F sharp or C sharp Mm -hmm. or Visual Basic or whatever, and you can. That you took know. a
0: monumental amount of work, though, to create those like different
2: right
1: language you interfaces. Often <laughs> run into oh, actually, you can't do this thing because you're working with this language and that's a different language. But but another example is sort of C where it's like oh, you know, you can come in as a C programmer and then start adding to what you already know. That transition. Um, I don't know if that can, that was very powerful in the case of C++. Yeah,
2: for Unison, even though you might have a surface syntax that like looks like Pascal or something, mm-hmm. Unison will never be Pascal. you like sure. can't, right. can't write mm-hmm. a Unison compatible Pascal. But, but as a way, no way to, to start it,
1: <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, if I'm able to start, you know, by writing some code in Python and then I can see what the the Haskell code looks like then, I t- for me that would yeah, be like oh as a I tool. see I do this and it produces this and now I can start making connections. So there's a tool like for you to for learning
0: be able to visualize a given mm. function in different languages. Right, as and then, a way to and then I, I would be able to different. to
1: move to the Haskell representation or or whatever more easily because I could see all right. This is what it means in my language well, versus their language. There's been
0: blog posts that do this to help bridge sure. bridge gaps, mm-hmm. but what if it's the tool that is actually doing it? So anything on any you code write, base? you go,
1: oh, I want to do this, and it goes, here's what it looks like. Well, that would be very powerful. I mean, or yeah, why does ideally... It doesn't even matter
0: what language you write in. Like yeah. it, should, it doesn't it doesn't even matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to write in a Python style, mm-hmm. great, write in a Python style. Yeah, and the then I could of syntax doesn't really matter. And see it as Scala, mm-hmm. something like Scala
2: but ideally we would want to have some kind of graphical IDE, you know, for Unison where like you're interacting with it, kind of like, you know, a small tech environment where, yeah. you know, you might be able to take some code that's in your code base and just, you know, you know, rolling your mouse wheel or something. You'll be able to flip through different syntaxes for it. Mm. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. that would be pretty cool.
1: That would be really something.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: We talked, you mentioned YAML and how terrible it is and, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. Um, but I think it's actually like all DSLs are terrible,
2: or all yeah.
0: all declarative languages are terrible.
2: Um, yeah, I think it's more that it's not. I don't want to hate on YAML because like that it's fine and good, but it's really that it's not a programming language. And...
0: Yeah, it's I I just tweeted about uh, Getz's law. Remember um, Getz's what? law is that all declarative languages slowly slide towards being terrible general purpose languages or something.
1: well the same experience that i had with you know make they kept adding things and then then at some point i think they realized oh we're trying to create a programming language here we need to stop (laughs) so i'm curious your take on on unison and
0: declarative syntax and uh and maybe doll i don't know if you've looked at doll or you know something that takes a more functional approach but
2: i actually yeah i'm embarrassed to say i actually have not looked at doll but uh
0: I've only looked at the syntax and and it looks interesting, but I haven't actually used it.
2: Yeah, overall, I think my take on things like that is that I, I really want to put those things under programmer control. So, you know, rather than like having a deployment that's described declar- declaratively uh, and then you know that gets like interpreted by by something uh, that like actually does the thing, just just you know have the machine. That your program is running on, capable of doing those things, and then put that under programmer control. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like with anything else, it's like, uh, I don't know. Like imagine if like, you know, how to how to run your program on on multiple CPUs on your machine were under the control of some kind of declarative declarative language uh <laughs> that we're like it was like out of band rather than being yeah. able to say like, oh, okay, well, new thread. Uh yeah.
1: Yeah, A lot of, for a lot of programming environments, it is kind of a different thing. You know, it's like, okay, here's how I normally program. And now if I'm thinking about concurrency, I have to do a whole different, I, I I open a door into a whole different world. Yeah.
2: Oh, I mean, effects are like this in in Scala or Haskell. Mm -hmm. Like once you start working with effects, it's like now you're in monads and this, the whole syntax is different. It's Mm -hmm. a a completely different way of programming. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Right. And it would be nice if that wasn't the case. Yeah. Would be nice. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, what if, like you've done with abilities and effects, doing the same thing with declarative, the, the ability for someone to essentially control another system in a constrained way, but doing it through unison instead of having to. Mm -hmm. use some weird language that then gets interpreted and then gets
1: well yeah yeah, it's like build systems it's like here's what i want to do and now i have to go to gradle and learn a whole bunch of other things (laughs) that don't make sense wouldn't it be nice if i could do well this is why people you know said oh i want to program in javascript on the server as well as on the client because i don't want to have to learn all these other things it's like yeah, maybe JavaScript isn't the best, the most ideal way to solve that problem. But I I get the motivation. Yeah, it's like I don't want to have to juggle too many languages. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I'm mean, imagining a future where like, you know, we'll be able to instead of communicating with like with an I don't know with an airline or something by like calling them on the phone and like giving them credit card numbers and stuff like that, you'll just and you'll just have a unison hash that you know will get you the tickets that you want. And you just send them that hash and you say, Hey, run this. And they'll say, like, Oh yeah, that's 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 a perfectly fine hash that we've, you know, we seen before and we know is safe to run or whatever. It doesn't use any abilities that we don't want to give you. Uh and then they just execute it and voila, you you have your tickets like on chain or whatever, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Like whole
0: whole new world of distributed systems.
2: Yeah, wanted to move towards like a distributed computational internet, where yeah. instead of uh, everything being like web forms or whatever, it's uh, you know, you're talking to each other. Systems are talking to each other programmatically.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, instead of through protocols, it kind of takes the whole idea of a protocol and says, "Nah, we don't need that."
1: So this is just kind of an idea that popped into my head. Um it will unison help with um all the problems that blockchain stuff is producing especially like you know the, the, ruining the environment because of all the unnecessary computation that's going on.
2: I, I don't know about that.
1: Uh-huh. I mean well that could be that could be your killer app right there. Right. The the <laughs> better mean, blockchain. <laughs>
2: We're certainly hoping to reduce the waste heat <laughs> produced by, like, running builds. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, or, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, it seems like there's a lot of excess stuff being done and, and also just, like, a lot of excess work being done, like, in describing designing and implementing protocols um, and, like, uh, interfaces between systems, interfaces between microservices and things like that. Uh, so yeah just like reducing all, a lot of that waste i don't know if we're gonna like save the world with this or anything but uh so
1: i think that's gonna be a team effort i think everybody's gonna have to yeah. get involved with that so server there's like serverless tagline which is like
0: not having to Make uh, my word to describe it, or maybe I took this from uh, a woman, Yana. I can't remember who invented it. But serverless is make servers somebody else's problem. Mm. Stateless is make state somebody else's problem. So the world of Unison is protocolless, where mm. you make protocols somebody else's problem. Like you, you actually like make it like. Y- maybe it's not protocolless because the problem just goes away because you don't need protocols anymore, but. The world of Unison protocol. Is...
2: Well, no, you do still need a protocol. The protocol the protocol is,
0: is the is the is Unison, the Unison is the internet program. protocol. Right? Yeah.
2: So that that's something where we're designing currently. Uh, but huh. yeah, ultimately uh, within this world, the program is the protocol. The program is the protocol, right? Yeah. You just need to know how to be how to read Unison programs and then execute them. That's pretty
0: game changing. Yeah. Cool. Well uh it was super fun to chat with you about unison i uh, love how you're changing the foundations to open up whole new worlds of possibility and making things easier in so many ways and um, i think it's such an inspiration because we don't often reevaluate the foundations that we've built all these uh very tippy unstable
1: massive structures we just get on top stuck of, in them that's yeah, what get, we do yeah. and we assume that they can't be changed
2: and well, they, you know people have other work to do yeah exactly it's, it's not
1: surprising but it's true we are we do get stuck and every once in a while somebody needs to come along and take say, a
0: jackhammer to the foundation and say
1: well, wait a minute let's think about this now <laughs> rather than just repeating it
0: yeah yes Well, thank you, Runar. Really appreciate your time.
2: Thanks for having me.